0: Section 37 of The Jolly Parisiennes and Other Novelettes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beth Thomas. Out of Work by Émile Zola. Translated by George D. Cox. The original sketch, as written by Émile Zola, that suggested La Samoire. One morning... When the workmen reached the workshop, they found it cold and gloomy, as with the sadness of ruin. At the extremity of the huge hall, the steam engine was dumb, with its thin shafts and motionless wheels, and it added to the melancholy of the scene that engine, the puffing and tossing of which ordinarily animated the entire establishment with the beating of a giant's heart noisily at work. The proprietor emerged from his little office. He said to the workmen with an air of sorrow, my good fellows there is nothing for you to do today the orders have ceased to come in from every side purchases have been countermanded and the merchandise will remain on my hands the month of december upon which i counted that month of heavy work in other years threatens to ruin the most solid houses everything must be suspended and as he saw the workmen look at each other with the fear of returning home the fear of hunger on the morrow he added in a lower tone i am not selfish No, I swear it to you. My situation is as terrible as yours. More terrible, perhaps. In a week I have lost fifty thousand francs. I stop the work today that I may not increase the depth of the gulf. And I have not the first sou towards making my payments on the fifteenth. You see that I speak to you as a friend, that I hide nothing from you. Tomorrow, doubtless, the bailiffs will be here. It is not our fault, is it? We have struggled to the last. I would like to bridge the chasm for you but all is over. I am on the ground. I have no longer bread to share with anyone. Then he extended his hand to them. The workmen grasped it silently, and for several minutes they stood there, gazing at their useless tools with clenched fists. Other mornings, from the hour of dawn, the files had been wont to scrape, the hammers to mark rhythm, and all that seemed already slumbering in the dust of bankruptcy. Twenty, thirty families would not eat the coming week. Some women who toiled in the manufactory had tears in their eyes. The men strove to appear firmer. They assumed courage. They said that one did not die of hunger in Paris. Then, when the proprietor quitted them, and they saw him depart, bent in a week, crushed perhaps by a disaster greater than he would admit, they withdrew, one by one, suffocating in the hall, their throats oppressed, their hearts chilled, as if they were leaving the chamber of a dead man. The corpse was work, the huge, mute steam engine, the skeleton of which was sinister in the gloom. A workman was outside in the street upon the pavement. For a week he had haunted the sidewalks without being able to find work. He went from door to door, offering his arms, offering his hands, offering himself bodily for no matter what toil, the most disagreeable, the hardest, the most deadly. Every door was closed against him. Then the workman offered to labour for half price but the doors remained closed. If he would work for nothing, nobody could employ him. Toil was at a standstill, the terrible standstill which sounds the knell of the mansards. The panic had stopped every industry, and money, cowardly money, had hidden itself away. After the week had passed, the end had indeed come. The workman had made a desperate attempt and was returning slowly, his hands empty, broken down by want. It was raining. That evening Paris was funereal in the mud. He walked beneath the heavy shower without feeling it, comprehending only that he was hungry, pausing that he might not reach home too quickly. He leaned over a parapet of the Seine. The swollen waters rushed by with an incessant noise. Jets of white foam were torn asunder by a pile of the bridge. He leaned further over. The tremendous flood passed beneath him, casting at him a furious summons. Then he said to himself that it would be cowardly to commit suicide, and went away. The rain had ceased. The gas shone in the jeweller's windows. If he were to break a pane of glass, he could snatch enough with one hand to keep him in bread for years. The kitchens of the restaurants were lighted up, and behind the white muslin curtains he saw people eating. He hastened his steps, hurried towards the Faubourg, passing cookshops, vendors' shops, pastry shops, all ravenous Paris, which exhibits itself during the hours of hunger. How his wife and little daughter had wept that morning. He had promised to bring them bread in the evening. He had not dared to return to tell them that he had lied before nightfall. As he walked along, he asked himself how he should enter, what he should say to make them patient. Still, they could not remain longer without something to eat. He would try to do so, but his wife and child were too weak and for an instant he thought of begging. But when a lady or gentleman passed him, his arms grew rigid, his throat became stopped up. He stood planted upon the sidewalk, while well-regulated people turned away, thinking him intoxicated from the wild, famished look on his face. The workman's wife had come down to the door, leaving the child upstairs. The poor woman was very thin and wore a calico dress. She shivered in the icy blasts of the street. Nothing remained in the house. She had taken everything to the Mont de Pieter. A week without work suffices to empty a hovel. The day before, she had sold to a junk dealer the last handful of wool from her mattress. The mattress filling had all gone that way. Now only the ticking was left. She had hung that before the window to keep out the air, for the child coughed very badly. Without mentioning it to her husband, she also had sought for work. But the stoppage of industry affected the women more severely than the men. "'In rooms upon the same floor as hers "'were unfortunate creatures whom she heard sob all night long. "'She had seen one of these wretched women "'standing like a statue at a street corner. "'Another who had lived in the rooms was dead. "'A third had disappeared. "'She, happily, had a good husband, "'a husband who did not drink. "'They would have been in comfortable circumstances "'if the dull seasons had not robbed them of everything. "'She had exhausted her credit everywhere. "'She owed the baker, the grocer, the fruiterer, and was afraid even to pass their shops. That afternoon she had gone to her sister's house to borrow twenty sous, but there she found also such poverty that she burst into tears without saying a word, and for a long while her sister and she wept together. Then, as she departed, she promised to bring her sister a morsel of bread if her husband should return with anything. Her husband had not returned. It was raining, and the woman took refuge within the doorway. Huge drops of water pattered about her feet, and the dampness penetrated her thin dress. Sometimes, growing impatient, she went out despite the storm and ran to the corner of the street to see if she could not catch a glimpse of the man for whom she was waiting in the distance upon the sidewalk. And when she came back, she was wet through and through. She passed her hands over her hair to dry it. She strove to be patient a little longer, shaken by slight feverish quivers. The passers-by elbowed her she contracted herself that she might not be in anybody's way. Men stared her in the face. She felt at times their warm breath strike her cheeks. All suspicious Paris, the street with its mud, its glaring lights, and its clatter of vehicles seemed to wish to seize her and hurl her into the gutter. She was hungry, and everybody had a right to crush her. Opposite there was a baker's shop, and she thought of her child asleep upstairs. Then, when her husband at last appeared, slinking like a wretch along the houses, she precipitated herself towards him and looked at him anxiously. "'Well?' stammered she. He bowed his head without reply. Then she ascended the stairs before him, pale as death. Upstairs the child no longer slept. She had awakened. She was thinking, her eyes fixed on a candle stump slowly burning away upon the corner of the table.' It is impossible to describe the monstrous and heart-rending expression on the face of that girl of seven, with the faded and serious features of a woman grown. She was seated upon the edge of a chest which served her for a bed. Her bare feet hung down, shivering. Her hands, like those of a puny doll, had drawn against her breast the rags which covered it. She felt a burning sensation there, a fire she wished to extinguish. She was thinking. She had never had any playthings. She could not go to school because she had no shoes. She remembered that when she was younger, her mother had taken her out in the sunshine. But that was long ago. They were compelled to remove from their home, and since then, it seemed to her, that terrible cold had reigned in their house. Besides, she was always hungry. Was everybody hungry? This was a grave question which she could ask herself, but which she could not answer. She had, however, tried to accustom herself to hunger, but without success. She thought that she was too little, that one must be big to know why people were famished. Her mother doubtless knew that reason which was hidden from children. If she had dared, she would have asked her, who brought people into the world to be hungry? Besides, everything in their room was so miserable. She looked at the window against which the mattress ticking was beating, the bare walls, the broken furniture, all that wretchedness of a garret which lack of work stains with its despair. In her ignorance, she believed that she had dreamed of warm apartments, with beautiful objects in them which shone. She closed her eyes to see all this again, and through her emaciated eyelids the glare of the candle became a vast golden brightness into which she wished to make her way. But the wind roared, and such a current of air came in through the window that she was seized with a fit of coughing, her eyes filled with tears. Formerly she was afraid when left alone. Now it made no difference to her. As they had not eaten since the previous day, she thought her mother had gone to get bread. Then she amused herself with the idea of eating. She would cut her bread into tiny morsels, which she would devour slowly one by one. She would play with her bread. Her mother returned. Her father closed the door. The child stared at their hands, greatly surprised. And as her parents said nothing, after a moment had elapsed, she cried in a whining tone, "'I'm hungry!' I'm hungry. Her father had covered his face with his hands in a dark corner. He sat there, crushed, his shoulders shaken by bitter, silent sobs. Her mother, forcing back her tears, put her to bed again upon the chest. She covered her with all the old garments in the room, telling her to be quiet, to go to sleep. But the child, whose teeth were chattering with the cold, and who felt the fire in her breast burn with greater intensity, grew very bold. She threw her arms around her mother's neck, and then she whispered softly, Why are we hungry? Tell me, mamma." The End End of Section 37 End of The Jolly Parisiennes and Other Novelettes by Émile Zola Translated by George D. Cox